It is great to see you here. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to join me in the 91st Psalm. Fear is a natural sensation. It can be healthy. The fact is, fear can help us respond to danger and get out of the way. But fear is not rational. I know that. How many of you fear a plane crash? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you didn't raise your hand, you're like, well, I don't. If you were in it, I'd venture to say you were afraid of it. How many of you fear going on a hike and getting attacked by a bear? Yeah, I mean, that's it's not something I'm psyched to encounter. Swimming with sharks, I'm not interested. Fear is natural. I know that it can help me avoid dangerous situations, but it's not necessarily rational. I'm not even smart enough to be afraid of the right things. I know this. I do not want to get in a cage match with a grizzly bear. Not interested. I don't want to swim with a shark, but in my study I found, do you know what animal kills more humans than any other animal on the face of the earth? Anyone? A mosquito. Now, that makes some sense, doesn't it? Transmits disease, but I know this. If you were going to put me in a cage match with a grizzly bear, in a pool with a shark, or in a closet with a mosquito, I take the mosquito every time. We're not even rational. We're not even smart enough to be afraid of the right things. It can be natural, at times healthy, certainly irrational. I want you to understand something for believers Fear should not be a way of life for us. The reality is such that we are offered protection by God. There is imagery that is used throughout Scripture. It is something that we really have to look at and take note of because of the repetition that we see within it. Listen to Psalm 17.8. Keep me as the apple of thy eye. This is a prayer of the psalmist. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. Again, in Psalm 36, we read this. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. Something is clear. We want... We need somewhere to go with our fears. That's this language within Scripture. In the New Testament, Jesus is addressing the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel. Hear his lament in Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often... Would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. It is the offer of protection, and the imagery that Jesus uses in that moment is like a hen gathering chickens under my wing. I would have done that for you, but you refused. This is painting a mental image This is repeated throughout Scripture so that we will understand and discern something very instructive about God in His view toward us. Now we arrive at the 91st Psalm. This descriptive imagery is here again. Look at verse 1 with me if you will. And these verses, as you've already seen, are available on these screens. He that dwelleth, In the secret place of the Most High 
shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. G. Campbell Morgan, a preacher of yesteryear, said this, This psalm is one of the greatest possessions of the saints. This is something for us to cherish. The only way for us to cherish it is to understand it. It is a possession that we have been gifted. I wonder if we are in possession of it. By the time we get to these first two verses, we grasp there is something that we must do in order to obtain the promises of Psalm 91. These two words arrest my attention, dwell And abide. He that dwelleth in the secret place will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The tone of this psalm is clear. I know we haven't read it to the finish line. We will. But the tone is clear. It is is warfare. The reality is it's battle. It's conflict. It's fighting. It conveys a daily grind. Hardship. It conveys endurance. In the very first verse, he that dwelleth in the secret place abides under the shadow. We can never forget that as believers, we have not been removed from the presence of wickedness that exists in this world. This world is violent. This world is cursed. This world is groaning, waiting for the Creator to set things right, and He will. Sin exists, and we are not removed nor separated from this wickedness. Jesus Christ, as He prays in John 17, He's praying for us, and in the 15th verse, here's His prayer to God, I pray not That thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. I think at times it's difficult for us to understand why God allows wickedness. Why he allows evil. Why he allows hardship. Maybe even at times we'll contemplate why he leaves us here. It's part of his sovereign plan. There is no doubt The fact is, we do live in a hostile, wicked, non-Christian world system. But He, according to His sovereign, infinite wisdom, has not removed us from this atmosphere of hostility. But He has promised to preserve us through this conflict. I love how one writer says it. He says, He has made possible a plan of insulation, not isolation. Think of it. He went on and wrote, God isn't interested in our isolating ourselves, hidden away like hermits in a cave, but rather in our living courageously on the front lines, claiming his insulation from an evil environment. There is a secret, and that's a word that is used in these first two verses, to survival, to perseverance, to endurance with joy. It is literally dwell in the secret place of the Most High and abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Dwell, as we have already studied in this series, is to remain, to sit, to abide, to hang out. It conveys the idea of permanence. To dwell with communicates living in fellowship with. To draw daily strength from. 
In the New Testament, Peter, in 1 Peter 3, speaks to husbands and he tells them to dwell with their wives according to knowledge, according to wisdom. It is the idea of relationship together, abiding together. In the same way we might say of a homesteader, they live off the land. So we are encouraged to draw on God. This requires an attitude of continual awareness of the Lord's presence, of His involvement. And as a homesteader, in effect, we live off of God to navigate life. The secret place. A secret hideaway. I loved building forts when I was a kid. Loved it. I loved playing hide-and-seek when I had little kids. My kids always went to the same hiding place, so it wasn't very hard to find them. But I know what they had in their mind. This is my secret place. This is where I go. This is where no one can find me. That's what is being communicated by the psalmist. If I will sit in intimate relationship wisely with the Most High, then I will abide under the shadow of the Almighty's wings. What that verse is communicating to us is simply this. If... We know the Lord Jesus Christ and we dwell in conscious fellowship if we keep our sins confessed and forsaken and we walk in moment by moment dependence on Him under the influence, under the dominion of the Spirit, then we endure life by enjoying the shadow of the Almighty. It's not dependent on who I am. How can I attach myself to the promises of Psalm 91? I do so by knowing more about God. God does what He does because of who He is. I don't mean to beat these verses to death, but I want you to realize something. One of the ways that God has revealed Himself to us is by His names. You know how you'll see that one person who's pretty rough looking and his nickname is Handsome. Have you ever seen that? You ever seen a really big guy and his nickname is Tiny? You know what I'm talking about. They're misdirecting. That's not true. Every name of God reveals something to us about his character. He's telling us something about who he is. And it is part of this passage of scripture. Note that he's called the Most High. He's the very highest. He is the supreme being. He is the owner of the universe. As such, He's all-powerful. He cannot be overthrown. You cannot get any higher than He is. That's instructive. He's called in here the Almighty. He's sufficient for everything that we need. By His inherent power, He sustains us and He protects us and He provides for us. He's called the Lord in here, Yahweh. He is faithful God. He makes a covenant with us and He keeps His covenant with us. He keeps all of His promises always. He's my God. That's what the psalmist says. Elohim. He is fullness and exceeding greatness of power. I love the use of the possessive pronoun. My God. Indicating that we can have a personal, intimate relationship with us. It tells us that He knows us. He communes with us. He cares for us individually and personally. This is instructive. It's because of who He is. If I will dwell intimately with Him. 
If there is peace between me and God because of the mediator Jesus Christ and his shed blood, and I keep my sins confessed and forsaken, and I walk under the influence of the Holy Spirit, then I'm abiding under the shadow of the Almighty, and he can carry through on his promises because of who he is. What does he do for me? Well, he's a refuge. He's a place of rest. He's a fortress. He's a place of defense. He's the only one in whom I can find those two things, rest and defense. The very last word of verse 2 is trust. Telling me, according to Proverbs 3, 5, that I must trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. I have to throw myself down on my face, lying spread eagle as it were, all of my weight upon who God is. One author trying to instruct and build on the language does it in a little graphic way. He says it's like doing a belly flop on God. Trusting that all of your weight, nothing left that you are trying to hold up. In effect, we stake everything that we have on God. And if he fails, then we are doomed. But he will not. A.W. Tozer nailed it when he said pseudo-faith, fake faith. Always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes for true faith. It is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam stood upon the earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. God is our refuge and our fortress. He offers us rest and He affords us peace because of who He is. I'm not equipped. I'm not smart enough. I've already told you fear is maybe natural and at times healthy, but certainly it is irrational. I live at times in turmoil, dominated by anxiety, in a chaotic set of circumstances, but I don't have to. Because of who he is. But it's not just clear in this passage that he does what he does because of who he is. He teaches us exactly what he does. I can have rest. I can have peace because of what he does. Look at verse 3 if you would. Surely, that's a word of confidence. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler. And from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. You don't have to be a great student of the Bible to see that the psalmist is saying he does three things. He delivers, he covers, and he shields. Because of who he is, this is what he does. He delivers from the snare, from the trap of the fowler. You say, I don't really understand that imagery. It's a bird who's been entangled in a trap, baited trap, something the bird needs, something by which one gets entangled, something deceptively attractive. What this communicates to us is there are times that I fall flat on my face. I become entangled. I am at the place where I am entrapped. And the Bible says of God that he is able to deliver me like a little bird from the snare of the fowler. He can get me. He can extract me from that situation. I don't know about you. That might be the most useful analogy in this psalm. Because man do I step in traps. 
Man, do I get myself entangled. But he can deliver. Not only does he deliver, he covers. He is depicted, and I already built this imagery up throughout Scripture as a bird that is keeping close watch over the brood. You're like a baby duck, though certainly not as cute, who runs to mama duck. You're like a baby goose, definitely you honk as loudly when you talk, who runs to a mama goose, and when they get to the mama goose, she puts them under the wing and turns toward the predator, covering with his wings. He is shielding by his faithfulness. Now, the psalmist is making us think. He's trying to have us engage in some visual application. You can't be lazy. Imagine yourself being delivered from a trap like a bird. Imagine yourself rummaging to a mama bird and being covered by the wing. Now imagine yourself in the midst of battle. Imagine yourself in the heat of battle. He is a shield. He's a barrier large enough to cover you as a soldier. He's a buckler. It's like a castle wall. If it was pouring down rain outside, and you were whining to me, I'm out here getting wet, what might I say to you? Something like, well, come on inside, and you'll be dry. If we were at a firing range and we were standing near the targets and we saw a bunch of hobby shooters about 50 yards from us and near us was a very large, impenetrable concrete wall, I could say to you, hey, we could stand out here and take our chances with these hobby shooters by these targets or we could get behind this barrier and we could be safe. Well, if you whined to me and stayed outside and said, I'm so sick of getting wet, and I said, then come inside, and you said, no, I'm going to just stand out here and whine, then I would say, well, then that's on you. If I left to get behind the impenetrable concrete wall, and you stood out there by the targets and said, I don't want to get hit, I don't want to get hit, and I said, then come behind you, and said, now nah, I'll take my chances of getting winged or worse by one of these obby shooters, I would say to you, well, then that's on you. So I say to you in the 91st Psalm, if we are being offered peace and rest, if we are being offered deliverance from snares, coverage by wings, indicating intimate care and love, if we are being offered a shield and a castle wall to stand behind, if we do not abide, then that's on you. Then that's on me. Regardless, the idea is the same. We're offered protection. Note what he does in verse 5. There's four words I really want you to see in here. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night. Make note of the word night. Nor for the arrow that flieth by day. Note that word. Nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness. Nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand. But it shall not come nigh unto thee. Perils in our sin-cursed world are very real. Spiritual warfare and battle is something we are ceaselessly engaged in and there is no out. Our weak flesh is something that we are saddled with that we cannot lay down until we're in the presence of the Lord. But the fact is, we're offered protection. Those words, day, night, darkness, and noonday reinforce the truth that God never sleeps. 
He never takes a moment off. The psalmist will come back in Psalm 121.4 and he'll say, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither sleep or slumber nor sleep. That's fact. He protects us at all times. That means that I can work through the day and sleep through the night and God is on guard all the time. That's comforting. Now there's something interesting here. As I read through this psalm, I make note that the majority of this psalm is written in the second person singular as if it is written especially for one person. And I say to you, it is. It's written for you. It's written for me to have. And now the writer's making several predictions about us. He's coming to some conclusions about our state of living based on our dwelling and abiding. And here's what he says. You will have no fear. Now that's a stunning statement. He uses big words like terror and arrow and pestilence and destruction. All of these things are satanic attacks against us. That's what he's describing. Assaults that take place at any time of day or any time of night. Do you realize that intimidation is one of the sharpest arrows that the deceiver has against us? And he assures us we won't be afraid. How can I not be afraid? Well, it, it imagery, again, he depicts me standing high on a parapet, so high that even the strongest bow can't reach. And though they're shooting ceaselessly at me, I look and I live with the awareness that not one of these arrows can reach me. I will have no fear if I am dwelling in that place. Not only that, my faith will prevail while others fail. Look how clear verse 7 is. A thousand shall fall at thy side. And 10,000 at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. That's just where you live. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Faith is written all through there. You say, now hold on a second, Pastor. When I read, no plague shall come near my dwelling, I clearly had COVID. Does that mean I wasn't under the shadow of the Almighty? It probably means you were under the shadow of someone who had COVID. And so you had COVID. And we're going to address this in a second. Does that mean no hardship will happen to me? Nothing will ever come? What it does mean is your faith will prevail. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul is telling us about spiritual warfare. He's telling us about the armor that we have. And he says, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. You can deflect everything the evil one throws at you. Your faith will prevail. You will have no fear. Your faith will prevail. Then there is one of the most stunning facets of this entire psalm. And if you wanted it to, maybe it could take a weird turn at this point. Now you've had your interest peaked, okay? The Bible gets weird. Are you going to get weird, pastor? Pretty weird. Look at verse 11. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample underfoot. Now get this, here are some predictions that are being made by the psalmist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for people who are dwelling 
in the secret place of the Most High. Thus they are living under the shadow of the Almighty. They are there because of who he is. And here is what he does. He delivers and he protects, he covers, and he shields. And it's really explicit here. He will have angels... Take charge over us. The word charge there is to appoint, to install, to give command. You say, so let's bog this baby down and talk about guardian angels. Well, that's not a Bible term. So not everybody on earth has one single guardian angel attached to them. What I do know is we are protected. He gives angels charge over us. Listen, the spiritual warfare that is invisible must be something to behold. That much I can say. We know that it is out there. We know that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That's the book of Ephesians. What I'm trying to say to you is someday when our eyes are opened and we are with the Lord and have perfect understanding, this invisible warfare must be something to behold. Not only do the angels have charge, they keep us in all our ways. They watch over, they observe, they preserve, they take care of us. Think about it. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. I would do field trips into Washington, D.C. It's a pretty great place to have field trips. I will tell you it surpasses Charlotte in that regard. I can remember being on a field trip as a little kid. This will kind of tell you the era of time that I was in. I was a little guy or little-ish guy, and we were in a museum, and the vice president was going to make a speech And I was probably borderline idiot as a kid. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm on a field trip. I'm walking through a museum. And as I rounded the corner near some stairs to go up, I was talking to friends and a guy grabbed my chest and pushed me back against the wall like he meant business. Like, kid, you need to stay right here on this wall. Well, I didn't really have the intestinal fortitude or muscles to get out of it, so I just stood on the wall. And I remember Vice President Quayle walked past me down these steps and in, and I was like, can we play now? Are we good? Can you let me go? When he got far enough to safety, the hand was released and the man moved on and I went up the steps and later when I would try to tell people that story, they were like, did you say anything to the vice president? Like, I'm not even sure I knew what that was. I just stood there. I think they had said something about pizza or hot dogs upstairs. I was just moving on. What I do know is this. In our world, if you have attained some celebrity status, if you are an important person, you typically are surrounded by some bodyguards who have the capacity to protect you. So I can say to you, average, run-of-the-mill, everyday, nobody believer, or that's how you perceive yourself, if you have angelic guards, that makes you pretty important, doesn't it? That makes you stand out just a little bit, does it not? They bear thee up. They lift, carry, support, sustain. This is something that is offered us. This is an encouragement. You don't have to leave here taking a look at the culture of our day and feeling utterly helpless. You leave here because of who God is and because of what He does, filled and infused with courage and peace and joy. He does all of this for us. For 13 verses, the psalmist 
has spoken to us. Now God speaks. And I'd like to say this is kind of the crescendo in the song. This is the pivot. This is the turning point in the movie. This is the moment where you scoot to the edge of your seat because the gears have changed and things are rising up and you cup your ear because you want to hear what is said in verse 14. God's talking. Okay, because he hath set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him, and in effect, I will show him my salvation. What a list of promises. From God's mouth to the psalmist's pen to our ears. God says, I will take care of you. You ever feel outnumbered, overwhelmed? Do you ever wish or long for just one to stand with you? And wouldn't it be great if the one that stood with you was universally respected and universally empowered and financially capable so that wherever you stood, if you had his stamp of approval and you had him standing behind you, you would know that you're largely going to find peace. Can I say to you what God is saying in this moment? For those of you that have leaned on me, for those of you that dwell in that secret place, I want you to understand I will be with you. You can't get any better promise than that. I need to clarify something as I close. Because you say, man, I'm pretty glad about this. Because what I understand now is that I can drink poison and handle snakes and nothing's going to happen. Okay, whoa, way off. All right, but I'm telling you now, there people can shoot arrows at me and they're going to miss. So I'm going to go home in the yard and I'm going to, no, 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 big miss. What does this actually mean for us? It sounds like to dwell under the shadow of the Almighty means that no matter what gets shot at me, it's never going to hit me. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Elizabeth Elliot. She wrote a, a biography of her husband who was murdered and the biography title is Shadow of the Almighty. Now, it seems a little naive to write a biography titled The Shadow of the Almighty like we have here in the 91st Psalm when we know that he and four others were speared to death in 1956 while they were trying to evangelize the natives. She was asked this question, are you, Elizabeth Elliot, are you, are you biblically illiterate? Are you spiritually naive that you titled this biography, Shadow of the Almighty, and your husband was murdered? And here's her response. Most people consider my confidence to be a little misplaced. Her answer at the end of the book is simply this. The world did not recognize the truth of the second clause In Jim, that's her husband's credo, which was, He is no fool who gives what he cannot gain to keep what he cannot lose. They, she said, trusted implicitly in the blood of the Lamb, that it had been absolutely secured and their future happiness forever. What in the world is she saying? 
She's saying to dwell in the shadow of the Almighty does not mean that hardship will never come. It doesn't mean things like this will never happen, but what it does mean is, in essence, you are secured anyway. In effect, if God sees fit to let the arrow that flies by day or the spear by a native to kill one of his children, God has done it for the sake of gain and not of loss. That's a right understanding of Psalm 91. In fact, the 91st Psalm, if you are biblically conscious or biblically literate, it maybe rang a bell because when Satan was tempting Jesus out in the wilderness in Matthew 4, 6, he uses Psalm 91 against Jesus, but Jesus won't use Psalm 91 that way. Neither did Stephen when he was stoned. Neither did James when he was beheaded. Neither did Paul when he was beaten with rods. Neither did Jesus again when he was crucified on the cross. None of them understood Psalm 91 to indicate that God's children will never suffer at the hands of their enemy. But that abiding in the shadow of the Almighty, trusting implicitly in the love and the power of God will give you everything you need. Everything you need to sustain you and to do His will and to glorify His name, whether you live or whether you die, which for Him is gain. Ultimately, this is driven home by the language of verse 14. Notice this and I'll close. Because He hath set His love upon me, therefore I will deliver Him. The Hebrew term that is used for love there is unusual, it's rare. It's referencing attaching something to something else. It includes the idea of attaching a saddle to a horse. Attaching a saddle to the horse. You can again begin to visually depict what's happening. In effect, what God is saying is because you cling affectionately to me, I will deliver you in everything. But what if it is my life? Then I will deliver you into my presence where you will find that it is ultimately gain. Over and again, the longer that I live, the more that I realize my flesh fails me. I am a sinner. I know that you are a sinner. Factually, we grasp that. But I mean to say to you that I repetitively and regularly sin. I know it maybe shatters some of your image. I'm not perfect. Some of you are devastated by that. Others of you are like, right, that's why we're considering other churches, dude. I know I sin. I I don't have the willpower or the personality traits to just be unaffected by hardship. I don't have the life experience or sheer wealth of wisdom to always make the right decision. I know that I live in a cruel and hostile and wicked, sin-cursed world. I know that I am in a spiritual warfare that is constantly around me. I know that the Bible tells me Satan is flinging darts at me. He's an accuser. I know my spirit gets beat down. I know that my temperament's not enough. I realize I have an end in myself and I reach it pretty quickly. And so when I arrive at Psalm 91 and I leave this place and I step out into the world where there's a whole lot to be afraid of, there's hostility on all sides and I think to myself, okay, I need a place to let my hope rest. I got Psalm 91 and I got Tuesday's elections. Let me help you. Psalm 91 is the answer. 
All right, I'm leaving this place, going into a hostile world, spiritual warfare is on all sides. I'm, I'm anxious, I'm, I'm fretful, I am not resting. My life is chaotic, there's turmoil on the inside. I'm dominated by fear. What do I do? You turn to Psalm 91 and you recognize this. You make peace with a holy God through the mediator that is Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And then, as a believer who has been reconciled unto God and brought from death to life, you live your life by dwelling in Him. Make Him your house. Like a homesteader living off the land, you live off of God and His Word. That means that you keep sin confessed. You let nothing grow between you and your Savior. You dwell in his word. You maintain a life of prayer. You live under the dominion and under the influence of the Holy Spirit in the daily grind. And when you dwell in the secret place of the Most High, nobody can get any higher, then you will dwell under the shadow. You'll abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Nobody can break through. And it's not dependent on your perfection. He does all of these things because of who he is. He delivers you and he covers you and he shields you because of who he is. You will have no fear. Your faith will prevail. The fact is angels will guard you and protect you. It doesn't mean that no hardship will ever befall you. But if it does, it is gain. It is gain. It is gain. Cling affectionately to him and he will deliver you. Peace is something we all desperately want. Fear is something that dominates us. Psalm 91 equips us. Would you please bow your heads for just a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.